Thank you, guys. Good morning, everyone. I thought this was on. Is it on? Okay, great. Well, here we go. We're off to our 2017, back to the, the madness. Our college students are the ones that were home are heading back, and the ones that were, I guess, back home are headed back to school. Some of our Karen students are here this morning. We welcome them. If you have your Bible this morning, I want you to turn to John chapter 12. This morning, as we finish up the first section of John, I want to start by appealing to a common experience that we've all had, but probably most of us, on probably at least one occasion. The first one's more rare. The, the first one is, how did I get here where I am right now? So that may be some time when you fell asleep and you wake up, you forget where you are. Hey, how did I get here? One time I was cleaning swimming pools years ago when I was at seminary, and I opened up a, a bucket of perf, um, chlorine tablets and got a strong whiff of um, this, that, that noxious gas, which is really bad for you. And I remember being out in the hot sun and having sniffed that. I got in my car to drive to the next pool to clean, and all of a sudden I, I realized that I had zoned out, and I was like, how did, how did I get here? But then the other thing that most of us have experienced more than once is, what am I doing here? And that usually happens in this setting. We get an idea that we need to go get something or go do something. Maybe it's down the basement. Maybe it's go in the cabinet. And you get there, and then you go, no, why, why am I here again? As you get older, it seems like those moments, you know, they happen a little more often. But, but that's important because it's kind of a microcosm of the way the world sort of views life. Why am I here, and how did I get here? And we use the term to describe the answers to those questions as your worldview, right? In other words, everybody has in their mind a worldview as to why they're here and how they got here. Even if their worldview is, I have no idea, they have some answer to that question. So as we've been going through the Gospel of John, John provides us with a worldview of why we're here, how we got here, and then where we're going to be depending on our decision. So remember in the beginning of John, John tells us that Christ is the Word. He's divine, who's with the Father, and He created us. But then he says He came into this world that was characterized by darkness. He's shown in the darkness. He came into a world that didn't want him. But then it says, he came to his own. He made this special offer to the Jewish people, but his own didn't receive him. So as a majority, the world rejected Christ. He was in the world, the world did not receive him. But then it says, but, there's this exceptional minority, to those who did receive him, he gives the right to become the children of God. So that's a worldview. Why are, why are we here? We're here because we've been created by Christ, and, and if you're a Christian, you should believe that this world is God's drama stage of redemption, that there's some great implications as to how we got here. We were created by God, but when Adam and Eve sinned, that original sin brought about horrible consequences. So we live in what we call a foreign world, or excuse me, a fallen world. We live in a world that, that is separated from God. We live in a world full of people who are in darkness and blindness. We live in a world full of people who are in rebellion against God, deliberate obstinance, but 
Because we're born here and we grow up here, that seems normal. But the Gospel of John is written that we might understand that left to ourselves, if we stay in that condition of separateness from God, we're going to go to hell for eternity. And this isn't talking about drug addicts and murderers. It's talking about everybody who doesn't come to Jesus. And so John says, I wrote these things in order that you might believe. And so the Gospel of John, as we've looked at the first 12 chapters now, we've seen that Jesus had a warm reception at the beginning of his ministry. Nicodemus, the woman at the well. But once we got to chapter 5, he's had opposition. Every chapter we see some people coming to Christ, but most people trying to kill him. So at the end of all this, John in chapter 12 is going to end this main section by summarizing the reason why most people are still in unbelief, okay? Now, this is, this is painful to realize, but the Bible makes it very clear that most of humanity is going to end up in hell. There aren't, I heard a guy one time say, more people will be in heaven than in hell. And I'm going, I don't know where he got that from, but Jesus said in Matthew 7, broad is the road that leads to destruction, Many are those who find it. Narrow is the road that leads to life. Few are those who find it. So as you look at this, this path, the Bible teaches that that path is not, not, not overwhelmed with most of humanity. Now, as you're reading your Bible and you're trying to go, why? Why are these people going to perish? Number one, and don't miss this, absolutely 100% fundamentally, people go to hell, and it's all their fault, okay? That is so important. Our personal decisions matter. No one ever goes to hell because they were programmed or because God created them to put them into hell. They go to hell because of their sin and their unbelief, period. The devil will never be able to stand before God and say, it's not my fault, you made me this way. The Bible says in Revelation 20, everyone's judged for their deeds according to the, the things that they have done, and those whose names are not in the book of life are thrown in the lake of fire. But then the Bible gives two other reasons why people go to hell. And there's a tension here. There's a mystery, okay? So God is not like our peer that we're like, oh, his brain's the same as mine, so I can understand everything he does. Just like the Trinity, there's a tension, a mystery. But the Bible teaches that two other reasons why people go to hell is one, because they're blinded by Satan. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this world, Satan, has blinded men so that they might not see the light of the gospel and be saved. But there's a third reason. And that third reason is a little hard for us to swallow. But theologians call it judicial hardening. It's where the Bible actually says that God hardens people's hearts. Now, some people struggle with that. They're like, that, he, he wouldn't do that. I don't believe that. But, but the Bible says that. He has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he hardens whom he hardens. And it's a deliberate choice on God's part not to prevent an innocent seeker from coming to heaven, but to seal a rebel in their condition so that they get what they deserve. At the end of John chapter 12, John says, look, Jesus did all these miracles, why don't they believe? Why every Sunday when preachers give invitations, isn't every unbeliever streaming forward and saying, I want to be saved? Well, let's look and see what John says as to why 
the theology of unbelief. Look in verse 36. That's where we left off. These things Jesus spoke, and he departed and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they weren't believing in him. Now, please understand that this is unbelief is a willful act. It's a decision to say, I will not trust and follow Christ. Okay, this is not just like, oh, they didn't think he existed. They refused. Well, John's asking the question, why, why is this happening? Verse 38, he says, so that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now notice carefully, verse 39, this is a tough verse. Remember, there's three reasons people go to hell. Number one, it's their fault. Number two, because Satan blinded them. Number three, God hardens them. For this cause they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes, he hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes, perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. One of the things that, the reason that we read the Bible verse by verse is, I want you to learn how to read the Bible. You, you don't have to be a theologian to understand the Bible, but you can't just yank verses out of context and go all over the place. But one of the things the Bible teaches is that false teachers twist the scriptures, but we're told to rightly divide the word of God. So one of the things that we have to do is learn how to compare scripture with scripture. If this was the only verse on why people go to hell, I would be very sad and confused because it sounds like they want to be saved, but God blinds them. He doesn't want them to be saved, okay? But we have to see this against a broader theological backdrop. These are not innocent people. These are sinful, rebellious people who have continually rejected Christ. And sometimes for reasons known only to God, he seals the deal even before they leave the world. He just hardens our hearts. Now, you don't have to, to, to let Satan beat you up with that going, what if he did that to me? Number one, if you want to be saved, then you are being called by God. Number two, don't worry about, oh, what if he seals my loved ones in unbelief? That's what prayer is for. This is a sovereign thing that only God knows. We don't know. But it's scary and sad to think that there are people that God comes to a point where he says, all right, that's enough. Now, Isaiah is an important book for us to understand in light of this backdrop. If you're reading the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has a vision of the Lord. He sees the Lord high and lifted up, but then he realizes sinfulness. He's like, oh God, I'm unclean. The Lord cleanses him, and then Isaiah says, send me, Lord, send me to preach to your people. And it's in that chapter of Isaiah 6 where God says, okay, Isaiah, you can go and preach to them. I'm sending you to preach to them, but understand this. They're not going to listen because I've hardened them. I've sealed them over. And then as the book of Isaiah goes on, God says in the book of Isaiah, behold, in chapter 28, I'm going to do a strange new thing, that God's going to expand the gospel far outside the nation of Israel, and he's going to begin to save thousands and millions of Gentiles. This whole idea is, is taught, and I want to encourage you to read Romans 9 through 11. Because in Romans 9 through 11, we read that God has hardened the nation of Israel for a time. 
so that most of the Jews are not going to come to Christ in this age. It doesn't say not any Jew, it just says not many, okay? And it's not a permanent rejection, it's a partial temporary rejection. But for reasons known to God, he has hardened the nation of Israel. We should still pray for them, we should still take the gospel to them. Some of them are still being saved. But it's not till the very last days where there'll be a massive conversion of Jews. So John quotes this. Now, let's continue. So, so don't get bent out of shape. Some of you have said, oh, I don't like when you talk about election. Election is not designed to confuse you. It's not designed to frighten you. It's designed to comfort you as a Christian. It's also designed to give God all the glory. You didn't get saved because you were smarter than the other bears. It is by his doing that we're in Christ. I was blind, but he caused me to see that no flesh should boast in his presence. So pray for your loved ones. Plead with your loved ones. If your loved ones die and you don't hear them confess Christ, you don't know. Maybe at the last moment they trusted Christ. Leave that up to God. But understand that God can have mercy on whom he has mercy and he can harden people. Now let's keep reading. Isaiah says in verse 4, or John says, These things says Isaiah because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Now, I want to just pause for a moment. Think about it. That's kind of cool. When you read Isaiah 6, and we've all read that, or some of you have read that, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, right? And we see him with the train of his robe filling the temple, the king. We learn from this verse that the, that the person of the triune God that he saw was Jesus. We call this a Christophany. Anytime someone sees God in the Old Testament, you can be more specific and say, it's not just God, but it's Christ. Because the Bible says no one has seen God at any time, but Christ is the one who reveals him. So next time you read Isaiah 6 and you sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. Picture Christ sitting there on his throne. That's who you're worshiping. But then John goes back to the human responsibility. He doesn't say, these poor Jews, they wanted to believe, but God said, no, 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 I'm not going to let you. People go to hell and it's their fault. If you don't get saved, it's your fault. And this morning, we're going to see a reason that you've heard me say before why many people don't come to Christ. Because they're still too worried about what people will think. Please, don't give your soul away and go to hell because you're worried about what people will think about you. What will my parents say if I change religions? What will my, my friends say if I leave them and follow Christ? This is a very sad verse. Look at verse 42. Nevertheless, many of the rulers believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Now let me remind you that in John, there's such a thing as an a inadequate belief. It's not a saving belief. Okay? And several times in John, you'll see the phrase, they believed in him, but then John will go on and say, but, but they weren't saved. Okay? Even in John 8, when Jesus says, if you continue in my word, then you're a real follower of mine, and the truth will make you free. So Jesus talked about people who will receive the word with joy. Yeah, this is kind of cool. But a true believer is a person who trusts themselves to Christ, has been changed in their heart by Christ, and will persevere with Christ, and will confess Christ. A refusal to confess Christ as your Lord and Savior is a pretty clear indication that you might not be yet a true believer. 
because the Bible says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe him in your heart, then you will be saved. So how sad. Some of them, even though they knew that this Jesus is from God, they're like, you know what? I, I don't want to get kicked out of the synagogue. I'd rather stay in this world than suffer the consequence. This is why we need to pray for our Muslim brethren. People, we, how sad that Americans are like, oh, I don't want to follow Christ. I'm going to make fun of me. In the Muslim world, these people are getting slaughtered. And yet they're still professing Christ. And we're going to have a Muslim pastor here on the 29th. And it's exciting to hear what God's doing in Syria. But to think that we're worried about someone laughing at us when in the Muslim world and in China, these people choose to follow Christ even though they know it might cost them their lives. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 44. Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. In other words, I'm, I'm the emissary for God. He who beholds me beholds the one who sent me. Remember Jesus said, if you see me, you've seen the Father. I came as a light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. So again, I want to remind you, believing in Christ is not just, oh, I believe there's a guy named Jesus. It's trusting him as your Lord and Savior and following him by faith. So what Jesus is going to do now is he's going to say, listen, if you end up in hell, it's because you refuse to believe and obey my words. Look how he says this. In other words, you can't say I didn't tell you so. Look at verse 47. If anyone hears my sayings and doesn't keep them, and the first saying is repent and believe. If you don't do that, he says, I don't judge you. I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. If you reject me and you, and you don't receive my sayings, like I preached a funeral a while back and someone got all upset and said, I don't want to hear that born-again stuff. Right, well, if you don't want to hear that born-again stuff, just listen to this verse. If you reject Christ and you don't receive his sayings, Jesus says, the word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. I said, you must be born again. If you reject it, that phrase is going to ring in your ears as you're cast into the lake of fire. For I didn't speak of my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. In other words, the gospel message is designed to bring people to eternal life, but it must be responded to. You can't just go, yeah, I heard about Jesus. You must trust him. You must commit your life to him. So Jesus says, I'm just speaking what the Father told me. So John summarizes that, that first section. Why aren't people believers? It's their fault. God has hardened them. But Jesus is still saying, come on, believe me. And I hope that as you've gone through these 12 chapters, I'm encouraging you to read John with others, to, to ask people, would you be willing to read John with me? Right? And, and talk about it and say, hey, what do you think? Do you believe this? Are you willing to follow Christ? If not, can you think about why? Is it because you love the approval of men? Is it because you don't want to, you love darkness rather than light? What is it that would keep you from coming and receiving eternal life? So, I hope that you will find John helpful in your learning how to share the gospel and trusting the power of God's word to save people. Now, beginning in chapter 13, we're going to move to a very different section of the book. John 13 through 17 is often referred to as the upper room discourse. We are now one week 
away from Jesus' crucifixion. So John 1 through 12 covers three and a half years. John 13 through 17 covers one night. This is a very significant passage of scripture. Some would say this is for Christian instruction. The, the rest was primarily for evangelism. I don't know if we want to make a great distinction. But now that we come to John chapter 13, this is when he has the Passover. This is when he has the Lord's Supper. But there's a lot in John that the other Gospels didn't give us. So this morning, we're only going to look at verses 1 through 17, and we're going to see the initial activity of Jesus. The first thing he does in that upper room this one week before he's crucified, and that is he washes the disciples' feet. I want to say a couple of things about foot washing to kind of set the, 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 the cultural background. Back then, they didn't have showers in their house. You know this. So if someone wanted to go to the baths, to the bathhouse, or to the river, wherever you got washed up, when you were coming back to your house, you had sandals on, right? So your feet would still get dirty or dusty. So any home that had any material substance often had a servant. And one of that servant's jobs was when you came to the home, there would be a pitcher and a bowl and a towel, and you'd come in, take off your sandals, and they'd pour water on your feet and just get the dust off of your feet. You know what it's like, you come back from the beach, right? get a shower, but then if you feel sand on the bottom of your feet and you're getting in bed, you're going to wipe it off. Nothing worse than sand in your bed, right? So this was normal. This was common. But among the Jews, it was interesting because the Jews saw this as such a menial task. There's some extra biblical literature actually of a mother who wanted to wash a rabbi's foot, her own son, and he refused. He said, Ma, I can't let you wash my feet. It's too menial of a task. And she took him to rabbinic court because she said, I'm not doing it because it's menial. I'm doing it because I consider it an honor. No one would ever consider the boss doing that. So this was a shocking thing for the disciples to see Jesus do that. But there's much more to it than just washing, his, washing their feet. Now, one thing I want to say just in, in preparation for this is most Christians believe that there are two ordinances or what some of you call sacraments okay on the night when jesus was betrayed he instituted the lord's supper he said go do this in remembrance of me right we take the bread the cup and remember his death he also instituted baptism at the end of his life he said go and make disciples and baptize them some christians believe that foot washing is a third ordinance some of you may have come from a church background that when they have communion they also wash one another's feet and the reason that they believe that is because Jesus said it. I washed your feet, now go wash one another's feet. But most believers in the history of the church have not seen that as an ordinance, but rather as a cultural example. And here's why. Number one, the book of Acts doesn't show this ongoing foot washing. It shows communion and baptism, but they don't keep doing it in the book of Acts. And secondly, in the early church history, they don't have evidence of this. So I wouldn't say churches are wrong for doing it. I just don't think it's necessary. But let's read this passage because there's two primary things that we need to learn in this passage about cleansing and about service, and then we'll, we'll sum it up. So let's look in chapter 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
And by the way, I, I mistakenly said a week before the Passover. This is the night of the Passover when he's going to be crucified the next morning. Okay? But I want to comment on two things. Number one, it says he knew that his hour had come to depart. Jesus knows I'm going to die. This is, this is crazy. If you were, near, you were going to die 9 o'clock tomorrow morning, I doubt any of us would be like, how can I serve the people I love? So knowing that he's going to die this morning, but he's not afraid to die because he knows that's why he came. I'm going back to the Father. But then it says he loved his own who were in the world. He loved them. Now, this phrase to the end is an interesting phrase. It can be translated to the uttermost. He loved, he loved them. So it may have a temporal idea. It may have a qualitative idea. It probably has both. And I want to tell you something. When you sing Jesus loves me, qualitatively, he loves you to the uttermost. He loves you and me more than we could ever, ever even imagine. And he demonstrates that. He goes, nobody could have any greater love than this and lay down their life. But there's also a quantitativeness to it, and that is that he's faithful, that he loves us all the time regardless of what we do. It's a great hymn, went like this. Though I forget him and wander away, still he is with me wherever I stray. And back to his dear loving arms I would flee when I remember that Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Yes, he loves even me. Remember that, Christian. He loves you extraordinarily and he loves you constantly. And there's nothing you need to do to earn that. And there's nothing that you do that he's like, you know, you're really getting on my nerves now. I, I don't love you right now. Just give, just give me some space. He's not like us. And I thank the Lord for that. So in verse 2, we learn something theologically that's very profound. It says, during supper, the devil put it, have already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Now, what? The devil put it in his heart? One of the things that the Bible teaches is this. Satan is so powerful that he has the ability to influence people's thinking without them knowing it. He can put suggestions in your mind and in your heart, and you don't even know that it came from Satan. Okay? Now, some people go, well, he can only do that to, to unbelievers. Now, by the way, there's a progression here because later in this chapter it's going to say, then Satan entered into him. So he gave Judas some bait. Judas received that. And then eventually Judas just was fully indwelt by Satan. But don't think for a moment that Satan can't do this to believers. That Satan can't put a thought in your mind. I'll give you two evidences of this. The first one is Ananias and Sapphira. I have no reason to believe that they were not Christians. But in Acts chapter 5, Peter says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? But even if you go, well, I don't know they're Christians, then now I'm going I'm to dunk you with one more verse. This is when Jesus said to Peter, when Peter said, you're not going to be crucified. You're not going to die. And Jesus goes, thanks, Pete. Get behind me, Satan. Was Peter not a Christian? So the idea is Satan can put a thought in your mind. Martin Luther said it this way. You can't prevent a bird from flying over your head, but you can prevent him from making a nest. And sometimes hideous thoughts can come into our mind and sometimes just wrong thoughts. Satan could just put the idea there. But then are you going to act on it? Are you going to... So instead of rejecting that, no, I'm not going to betray him. Judas warmly received that. And that's why we need to pray that God will help us to, to monitor our thoughts and that we won't sit there, you're right, I don't deserve a wife like this. He did that, to, I should do this. And what, I think I'm going to... And you, you see how subtle Satan is. The Bible tells us don't be ignorant of his schemes. 
to put thoughts in your mind. You're not a Christian. If you were a Christian, you wouldn't, do, you wouldn't have thoughts like this. And what's the point? You've been trying. It doesn't work. Just go back to the world. So just know that, that this is how Satan works. He's, he's throwing his fiery missiles at you. And the Bible says you have to take up the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit. Don't listen to him. When those lies come into your mind, you're a failure. Nobody, you, you're not be able to do anything. You might as well give up on your marriage. Stop going to church. Don't read. The Bible's not true. There is no God. Just say to him, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. And you move on in faith. I'm going to stand against him. I'm going to resist the devil. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had given all things to his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Now that verse, when I was studying this week, that blessed me because I was very worried about something. Not that you ever worry, but the next time you're worried about something and you talk to Jesus about it, who are you talking to? You were talking to someone to whom the Bible says the Father has given all things into his hands. Jesus said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. There's not a molecule, there's nothing that isn't under the authority of Christ. It brought me comfort. Lord Jesus, I got a problem, but all things have been delivered into your hands. If I trust you with it, there's nothing you can't do. Could, could, could you believe that? Could you say Amen. Lord, my marriage is tough or whatever, and this wasn't my problem. But Lord, help me. Tammy's like, you did not just say that. No, I promise that's not what it was. But the point is, God has entrusted everything to Jesus. You trust and follow Jesus. He's got this. All right? So let's look at what Jesus did, and then we'll draw out the application. Jesus rose from supper, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, girded himself about. Now get the picture out of your mind that Jesus pushed his chair in. They didn't sit in chairs back then. They laid down on the ground like this. It's called reclining a table. They had a small table, actually facing this way. They had a small table. They're all laying down. They're just chilling, eating. And Jesus gets up, and they're all like, ah, Jesus must want to stretch. You know, he's had a bad back. Gets up. And then it says, but he took a towel, and he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet. And I don't think they even realized. They wait, wait, what? And so he comes to Simon Peter, and Simon says, Lord, do you wash my, you're washing my feet? There was an indignation here. You're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus said to him, Simon, listen, what I do, you don't realize now, but you shall understand after these things, hereafter. Listen, take note of that. Sometimes God does something in our life, and we're going, Lord, no. No, stop. And he goes, what I do, you don't understand now. But you'll understand later. And we're like, well, if I don't understand now, then don't do it. He's going, trust me. This is a great reminder that God doesn't always do things our way. But we can learn to trust him. Whatever he allows in our lives, one day we'll understand. So Peter says, Lord, you're never going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, really? If I don't wash you, now I want you to think about this phrase, you have no part with me. Now we don't usually say that to somebody. Like if you said, if you said to your boyfriend or girlfriend, if you don't come to my rehearsal, we're done. But we don't usually say this, you have no part with me. 
You've no part with me. And that word, to have a part, is usually used of an inheritance. It, it indicates that you have a relationship that results in inheritance. So when you think of having a part with Jesus, that's a good thing. If you have Christ in your life, you got good things coming. You have a great inheritance. In fact, the book of Revelation describes it this way. God says, I will take away your part from the tree of life. So there's a lot at stake here. And listen, I don't, I don't want you to miss the, 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 the deeper meaning. If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. He ain't just talking about feet, folks. Can I tell you this? If you want to have a part in heaven, you need to be washed by Jesus. Not your feet, though. Your soul. The Bible calls it being washed in the blood of the Lamb. When you come as a dirty sinner and you admit to him, I'm dirty. And he says, I'll wash you. And the Bible describes believers, those who have washed their robes, who are washed in white linen. That's how God views us as Christians. Blood-bought, spotless, washed saints. So if you're here this morning, you go, what's all this stuff talking about? Don't miss this one. If Jesus doesn't wash you, you're not going to heaven. Well, how do I get washed? Come and believe. Come and receive. Come and accept him as your Lord and Savior. Now, Peter doesn't get it, but he knows this much. I don't want to miss out on my part. So Peter says, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Now, Jesus is going to use this as an opportunity to teach us a very important truth. This is a very significant truth in the Christian life, and you've got to get this one down. When you become a Christian, you are forgiven for all of your sins, past, present, and future. You are completely forgiven. No condemnation. Your sins are washed away. But in the same way that people back then would dirty their feet, when we sin, we dirty our feet, and we affect our fellowship with God. It does not affect your relationship with God. You're still his child. You're still going to go to heaven. But if you sin and you don't get washed, you are now in a broken relationship with the Father. And that's a bad place to be for a number of reasons. The Lord stops hearing and answering your prayers. The Bible says, if I regard sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. The Lord begins to discipline us, but we're still his children. So, so what we're talking about here when Jesus says this, now look, look what he says. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew the one who was betraying them. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. In other words, not Judas. But here's the thing. I'm going to say, say this is what Jesus is telling you this morning. Listen, child of God, you are clean. I've washed you from all your sins, but you need to wash your feet. What does that mean? It means when you become conscious that you have sinned, that you quickly do two things. One, you repent, which means you're willing to turn away from it. And two, you confess it to God and ask for him to cleanse you. Okay? You don't have to go do penance. You don't have to promise him, I'll read my Bible for two hours tomorrow. You repent and you confess it. And this is an ongoing experience. Repentance is part of the Christian experience. So, a couple verses. Jot these down. Some of you know these, but some of you who are newer disciples, 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Now, to confess means to say the same thing to God. Now, I want you to really get this down. This is really important. Don't just say to God, dear God, forgive me for my sins. <clears throat> That's not confession. And you get this because when your kid says, I'm sorry, you go, sorry for what? <clears throat> so it's a waste of time to say, oh, God, forgive me for my sins. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive me my sin. Because that's not confession. Confession is when you say what you did. The word means to agree with God, to say the same thing. So if you lied, God forgive me because I lied. If you were lustful, God forgive me because I was lustful. If you burst out in anger, God forgive me because I was angry. God forgive me for having an idol in my heart. God forgive me that I haven't prayed for three days. You just specifically confess it. And the Bible says when you confess it, he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's done. You don't have to feel guilty, shame, beat down. God says, it's done. We're washed. Your feet are clean. We're back in fellowship. Okay? And it'll affect your marriage if you're in sin. The Bible says, treat your wife in an understanding way so your prayers aren't hindered. So, so this is an important experience. You are forgiven, clean, but keep your feet clean. If you know you got sin in your life, just ask God to forgive you. Be willing to turn away from it. Now listen. This is not 1 John 1, 9, Mac card. Sin as often as you want and even get advanced credit to do it again. Proverbs 28, 13, mark this down. Very important, Proverbs 28, 13. He that covers his sins will not prosper. But then it says this, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. So it's not a mockery. It's not going, God, forgive me for looking at this porn and doing this, and I'm going to do it again tonight. God, forgive me for having an emotional affair or having pride, or, or God, forgive me for you know, not being honest at work, but I have no intention of stopping that. That's mocking God. So please, this morning, I, because we're sinners, I get it. I need people to preach to me too and, and reprove and correct me. I can imagine that some of you, God's speaking right to your heart, and he's, I'm speaking to you right now, because there's things that you are not right with me, and it doesn't affect our relationship. I love you, you're my child, but you need to ask me to forgive you, I'll wash you, and you need to be willing to turn away from it. And you're like, well, I tried, and I can't. I try to do that, and I can't. No. Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Take desperate measures. Please don't come in with a stump on your hand. But if you're trying and you can't, then, then talk to someone. We're all sinners. But we can do all things through Christ. Don't keep these secret sins. They will drag you down. They will bring God's discipline. I tell you this for your own benefit. Pray for me. Pray that I would never harbor secret sin. It's a terrible place to be as a Christian. And it's a tempting place where Satan will want to put you. So we want to be a bunch of people who are in a hospital, right? We come to church not because we're all good people. We come to church because we need Christ. And, and we're reminded of our sins. And when God speaks to us, we confess them. We're cleansed. And we go on with Jesus. Could someone say amen to that? Amen. So we're not going to go home dirty. If you go home dirty, you miss the point. And if you go home dirty, you're going home in danger. All right? So let's wind this up. Jesus gets done in verse 12. And so he says this. When he'd washed their feet and taken his garments... They're all just looking at him like, what just happened? He goes, you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. Now, don't miss these next couple verses. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is one who has sent greater than one who sent them. Now, look at this verse. If you know these things, now watch carefully. 
If you know these things, verse 17, you're blessed if you know them. Is that what it says? You're blessed if you know them. I get tired of Christians who all they want to do is study the Bible, but never want to apply the Bible. The Bible is not a textbook full of relevant and interesting, tantalizing information. It's a powerful, God-sent tool to bring about transformation. And there are a lot of people in this country who love to listen to the Bible and affirm the Bible and say, Amen, brother! But there's a big difference between listening to the Bible and affirming the Bible and assenting to the Bible and obeying the Bible. You are blessed if you do them. God really doesn't care if you have devotions if you don't do anything about it. What good is it to listen to the Bible? James says in James chapter 1, if, if you just listen, you don't do what it says, you're deceiving yourself. But the Bible promises blessings when we obey God. So Jesus is saying, don't go around telling people, I saw Jesus wash feet. You won't be blessed doing that. He says, go out and serve others and you'll get a blessing. And that's exciting. The Lord gives blessing when we trust and obey him. So let, let, me, let me summarize a couple things and we'll, we'll go on our way. It's a great passage, isn't it? Like, wow, Jesus, you love me so much. So four things. Number one, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. Okay? I got a, a profound truth for you. Jesus loves you like crazy. Jesus adores you. He thinks about you more than the sand of the sea. And nothing you have to do will earn it or turn it away. You are secure. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Pray that the deep, deep love of Jesus will just over... That's what I pray. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says that we might know the love of Christ. Pray that you might rest in and enjoy and celebrate that you are loved by Christ. And because you're loved by Christ... Now listen to this. Because you're loved by Christ, you're secure, you're clean... And he's there to serve you. I don't know why. Why would he be up in heaven right now serving and praying for me and keeping and caring for me? That's exciting. And the more that you grasp that, the more that you believe that, the more that's going to change your life. People don't change out of fear. The Bible says we love him because he first loved us. There's no greater motivation to repent of your sins. Not because you're afraid of Jesus, but because he overwhelmed you with his love. See him on that cross just going, this is how much I love you. I love you to the extreme, and I love you permanently and continuously, and one day you're going to see me in heaven. When John wrote Revelation 1, the beginning of the book, he says, to him who loved me and washed me from my sins in his blood. Won't it be great to see Jesus, the one who loves us? Peter said, though you can't see him now, you love him. Do you, do, do you pray that the Holy Spirit will well up within you just an ability to rest in the love of Christ. It's a great place to be, just resting in his love. Now, secondly, because he loved you and because he washed you, out of gratitude, keep your feet clean. If you're sinning, why are you continuing to persist in that? And I get it, there's a struggle but be marked by repentance. The Bible says a broken and contrite heart, God will not despise. So that's just a great reminder. Now, we don't have to play the Holy Spirit and everybody else. You need to stop that. You need to stop that. This is just between us and Christ. Lord, 
This is why we have communion. Examine yourself. Judge yourself. So if there's something this morning you need to do business with God, it starts this way, but it may also go this way. The Bible says keep a good conscience before God and man. If you lied or sinned against somebody else, you ask God to forgive you. And then some of you, even in your marriage, you need to ask your spouse to forgive you. And, and work on this. We're here to help you. Don't look around and say, everybody else has a good marriage except me. Marriage is a struggle of two sinners. And Satan wants to destroy marriages and families and individuals. If you're stuck with some addiction, whether it's porn or drugs or substance or, you know, whatever, get help. Come out of the dark. Talk to someone. And begin to experience the healing of the Lord. Keep your feet clean. Third, just a quick reminder, don't forget, Satan's not going to send you an email going, hey, you've got mail. And you, and you go, what thought did the devil want to tell me? Hey, you should go do this. No, devil, I'm not going to do that. He's way more clever than that. Just think about what goes through the screensaver of your mind and realize Satan wants to put discouraging thoughts in your mind. Lies. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. Rebuke him. Or ask, excuse me, ask the Lord to rebuke him. Stand in the scriptures. Rehearse the word of God. Take the shield of faith. Third, or that was third, don't be ignorant of his schemes. Here you go, ready for this? Because you're loved, because you're secure, because you're clean, could you get outside of yourself and serve others? What would that look like for you? I, I thought when Pastor John said, we need people to help move stuff afterward. I'm thinking after this sermon, I'm hoping whoever's over there will go, no, we got too many people, that's enough. What could you do differently in your home instead of being the one that always says, can you, can you bring me this, dear? Get me some more tea. Shock your family. Say, let me get the dishes. Shock your wife. Let me change the diaper. Shock your coworkers. I'll clean the coffee pot. Let's really be characterized. Let's ask God to help us to have that humility. It says, because I've been freed, because I'm secure, because I've been loved, I can love and serve others. We want you to be involved in serving Christ. If all you do is attend this church, please, get involved. We'll help you to find places to serve. And then it doesn't just have to be in this church, but in your home. Go home and say, Lord, I'm taking up. Remember what Fred Flintstone had? The royal order of the towel. You're going to take up, or the royal order of the buffalo. You're going to take up the royal order of the towel. You're going to gird up your gospel towel, and you're going to say, all right, Lord, I want to serve my family. I want to serve my friends. I want to serve my enemies. I want to be like you. And you know what God has in store for you? What did he say? You'll get a blessing. Amen? But what if I'm not happy and people don't serve me? That's why you're not happy. If you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Let's pray together. Thank you so much, Lord. This is a wonderful passage, so relevant. We want to start by praying for our unbelieving friends. Some of them are close to Christ. Some of them are far from Christ, whether it's our kids, our neighbors, our loved ones. We pray that you will open their eyes. We pray that you will not harden them. We pray that you will speak to them and that we could be a light to them. We pray for our nation. I pray for this church, and we've been praying that many souls will be saved. And Lord, I pray that you would search our hearts this morning. If there are areas that we need to wash our feet, 
Take a moment right now and just tell the Lord what it is. Let it go. Ask forgiveness. Forgive that person, whatever it is. And picture him pouring that water and cleansing you now. Lord, I want to pray that you will also protect us from the devil's thoughts. He's a liar. Help us not to believe his discouraging thoughts that beat us down. Help us to put scriptures up in our house that will encourage us to see ourselves the way you see us, to rehearse the gospel in our mind, to remember that we're loved, to teach our children and sing around our homes of the love of Jesus. And Father, send us out to serve. We look forward to ways that we can serve one another. Thank you so much, Lord, for being our great example. Because we're loved by you, we've been washed by you, and we've been served by you. Send us out to serve one another. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. If you don't mind, as much as it's fun to sit around and fellowship, if you have children, it helps the children's workers if you get your kids first, and then sit around and fellowship. Thank you very much.